Welcome to the Texas Home Improvement Super Podcast with Jim Dutton. All the best calls this week throughout the state of Texas. Brought to you by Carrier. Turn to the experts. Mike, welcome to Texas Home Improvement. Hey, Jim, nice talking to you this morning. Hey, I live in a, I live in a double-wide mobile home, and when we're away for a couple of days and come back, it always smells a little musky. And I'm wondering if I, I heard you talking a few minutes ago about you put in a, a vent fan for a guy, and yeah. I was wondering if something like that might help us because I'm I'm just guessing we don't have any water leaks that I'm aware of, so I'm just guessing it's it's some muskiness. We live on Lake Granbury, right on the water, so you know we have a fair amount of humidity all year. And is the underside skirted and sealed up pretty pretty well? Yes, sir. It, it's yep. got some vents in it, but they, they weren't done properly. It, it used to have some masonite siding for uh-huh. for underpinning, and then yeah. they put plastic siding on it, and they just laid it over that and didn't take it down, so they didn't cut vents where yep. the plastic vent are, vents are. So well, I've cut I, I, a few that's... in it, but probably not enough. Yeah, that's that's going to be what the problem is. You you got to get some ventilation underneath there. I'll tell yep. you, since it's right there on Lake Grapevine, uh, you know you, you probably don't want to mess with it. I'll give you twenty bucks for the trailer and, and the land that goes with it, and and I'll hey, take deal. care of it for you. Just come on down. <laughs> I love that you lake bring, down there. That's a gorgeous you, area. You bring the whiskey, and I have the boat. Okay. <laughs> uh, the, what you need to do is is cut some vent openings in there, uh-huh. and. Yeah. Uh, vent openings alone is probably going to be all you need, but if it needs a little extra help, you can put a yeah. fan in one of those vent openings, and yes, you you want to suck the air out from underneath so that it's drawing right. new air into the vents. Don't blow yep. air underneath. Always suck it out, and oh, yeah. that, that'll get rid of that must. Okay. I'll give it a try. All righty. Appreciate you take it. Have care. a great weekend. You, you too. too. Bye. We're going to head over to Fort Worth, and Justin, how can I help you? Hey, Jim, I had a question. I heard you talking with a gentleman earlier about some foundation repair, and uh, we actually have a few issues with one of our buildings at the office, and I hear a lot of guys talking about pushing concrete or pushing steel. If you could yep. just tell me the difference or the benefit. Absolutely. In fact, uh, we developed the installation process for the concrete piles back in the early 80s when they when the when that first was coming out uh, there was a an engineer named Gene Wilcox who developed that system but he didn't have a good way of putting them in the ground he was doing it with hand jacks and so we developed all the installation equipment and process that people are using on it nowadays uh, and basically here's the difference both systems use hydraulics to drive a pile or section into the ground on the precast concrete piles it's a six inch diameter concrete cylinder that's developing skin friction on the sides of it as it's being driven in the ground and you just keep driving until you can't drive any further and that's built enough skin friction now to support the structure you move over about six feet install the next one and when you level you spread the load out over all the piles that you've installed. Steel piles are driven in the ground basically the same way, but they are tip a smaller diameter. They're typically two and seven eighths inch diameter. 
and they're driven down until they land on something solid. So it's, it's a different concept. Not to say that you can't drive them as skin friction, uh, because like on lighter loads, like uh, wing walls on a house and things like that, we'll use steel. In some areas of town where the rock isn't real deep, we'll use steel piles. Uh, you're just transferring the load from the surface to the bottom of whatever it's sitting on. Uh, in most cases, it's going to be like a limestone base that it's sitting on. And uh, so that's the primary difference. Bo both piers do an excellent job. It just depends on the soils you're dealing with. We talked about two different methods there of foundation repair. Another big one that's used a lot is drilled piers. Uh, you got spread footings. Those are all methods of underpinning to pick a structure up. The other thing that's done heavily nowadays is urethane injection. Uh, basically, it's an expansive foam that's injected under concrete. As it expands, it picks the concrete up. We used to do what's called mud jacking, and that's still used somewhat, but urethane is used a lot more nowadays than the mud jacking. I do not recommend mud jacking or urethane under a home's foundation. And here's why. If you think about what causes foundation problems, when the soils dry out, they shrink. When they get wet, they expand again. Not as much as they were the time before. So after we go through years of these cycles, we get settlement. Well, when you level a structure, you create a void underneath that foundation. You need to have enough underpinning in that area to support that foundation. And if you don't, you need to add more piers and, and be able to support it without putting mud pumping or urethane because you're putting it right back on the moving soil if you do inject urethane or mud pumping. And the first, say you level a house when the soils are dry, when we start getting heavy rains, the soil swells, it picks it up higher than you built it. Vice versa, if, if we're in a wet season and the soils are swelled, and then you lift it a little bit, you put the, the urethane or the mud underneath there, the first time it dries out good, it's going to shrink away and have a void anyways. And to be honest with you, 90% of the time when we go up underneath a foundation, there's a void between the concrete and the soil. It's the beams underneath the foundation that are in contact with the soil and giving it support. So uh, I, I, use, I actually have a mud pump machine and a urethane truck. We use it for driveways and sidewalks and patios, things like that. Even, even uh, commercial warehouses and you know structures of that nature, but not residential homes. Because when it starts moving, you crack up the sheetrock and stuff. And so you've got to have enough beef underneath there to hold that foundation without depending on that mud or urethane. Anyways, a little uh, 101 in foundation repair. And uh, I'm, I'm going to address this with everybody on new homes real quick. Uh, you know, your home has limited warranties on it. Typically for a foundation... It's 10 years on the foundation, but you've got to document the heck out of it uh, that there is movement or have pretty major damage. 
And the common thing is they want to just doctor it up to get you to that 10-year mark. And I'm going to tell you, I have a policy when we touch a foundation, uh, if it's a new home like that, I'm doing the whole thing inside and out. Because from that day forward, I own that foundation. Uh, if there's movement, you don't have the option to go back to the builder because I guarantee you when they sign, when they do any type of payment to a contractor for foundation repair, you're signing a document that says you no longer can come back after the builder for that foundation. So why would you want to shortcut it? And I know there's a lot of contractors out there who will come out and put you know, six piles on a corner for you and, and try to get you by. Uh, no, don't do that. If you got a new home that has foundation movement, you got a problem that could be extremely expensive down the road, and you need to get it documented and have the builder take care of it, not coming out of your pocket. And, you know, when you uh, do have this type of problem, you are not obligated just because the builder says something to do what the builder says. You have rights and options to make sure that it's being done the way you want it and being done the right way. Let's head to uh, McKinney. And Barbara, this is Jim. How can I help you? Hi, Jim. Yes, I believe I have a problem on the west side of my house. When it was built, I brought it to the attention of my builder that I felt like the slope was pretty deep and there should be a retaining wall put uh -huh. in, and they disagreed with me. Of course, didn't put the retaining wall in. Now, years later... I look at that side of the house, it's a narrow side, and my sprinklers are, my in-ground sprinklers are, have about six, four to six inches of soil below where I think they should, and I can see more and more of the concrete in the foundation. So I'm really concerned that I'm going to have some foundation problems if I don't determine what's going on over there or put a retaining, a small retaining wall in. Okay. What do you think? Well, how much slope is there? I mean, is it dropping down two foot, four foot? I would say from the top of the soil to the bottom, I'd say probably a good almost two feet. Okay. You know, it, it'd be very easy to put a little retaining wall along there out of a uh, what they call a cut face block. And that it would look gorgeous take care of that problem for you and you are correct it left to go the soil is always trying to flatten out and level itself out now i don't know how deep they went with the foundation into the soil whether it's going to cause you an issue or not but it really won't cause you an issue unless the soil starts dropping down to where it's getting near the base of your foundation uh, so if the beam around the perimeter of your foundation is, say, 18 inches, which is very common, and right now you only have, say, and let's just say you have 4 inches of foundation showing, uh, that would mean you still got 14 inches underground, you're fine. But if you got 10 inches showing and only, say, 6 inches left underground, that's six, a 16-inch beam, you're getting into an area where, yeah, it won't take much to, to have some pretty good movement going on. Okay. And I do have, I can see where the boards 
you know, how they put the boards along the concrete as it's hardening, yes. and then they pull those boards away. I can see that ridge. The top of the ridge is probably six inches uh-huh. uh, away from the dirt. So. Okay. Yeah, I, you know, putting in that, a little retaining wall along there would be preventative maintenance, and I'm, I wholeheartedly believe in doing preventative maintenance for foundation problems. So if, if you want to okay. call our office at Due West, uh, we can definitely take a look at it and at least give you some options on it. doesn't cost you anything to, to have us out to look at it. And Very good. Thank you so much. Barbara, I appreciate the call. Victor, how can I help yes, you? Yes, sir. Good afternoon. How are you today? I'm wonderful, sir. My quick question, thank you for your show. It's a great show. I have a quick question for you. How difficult is it to add more air conditioning into an existing house? I have a 5,000-square-foot house, and the two units that I have cannot keep the house cool enough. I uh, bought it about five years ago and uh, starting to realize certain things about older homes. This one was built in 83. Uh-huh. And... Hey, I, I, I got two uh, five-ton units, but the house during the peak of summer never gets cool enough. It stays at 78 degrees. If I would like to, set, to put it on 75, it just won't reach it. Okay. And so you, you said you got two five-tons for 5,000 square foot. Yes, sir. Uh, you know, the old rule of thumb is that would have been enough, but... Nowadays, uh, we do so much more in sizing an air conditioner. We need to do what's called a, a heat load, and that's basically they draw the house up, put where the windows are facing, what it's got for insulation. All this stuff goes into a, a computer program that will tell you what size air conditioning system you need. Uh, but even at that uh 10 tons of air conditioning should be able to do better. So I would say before I'd start looking at replacing or adding another system, let's run the loads first, see what it needs, and then see what can be done to adjust what you have. Because you can okay. have the best air conditioning system in the world, and if it's improperly installed, it's not going to keep up. Vice versa, you can take the cheapest air conditioning system, but if you have a great installation, it's going to do exactly what you want it to do. Makes makes sense. Unfortunately, the master bedroom is the one that suffers the most. I, I get very little circulation in there, and so we have to put fans to fan sure. you know cooler air in there. So we thought, well, let's put in a mini split maybe. Maybe that will help out you know and, the and that, master bedroom. And that bedroom. very well could be, but a lot of times, you know, especially when it's in one room that way, it's a balancing issue where air flow mm. has to be adjusted some uh, in order to okay. balance the temperature everywhere. Uh, but, you know, that's the master bath bedroom. As long as the kids are happy, everything's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I wish it was that simple. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Mama's not happy. Nobody's happy. <laughs> ah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate it. I guess that gives me an answer to give you guys a call and you guys come in and give us an analysis. Just a reminder, it's a huge help if you subscribe to, rate, and review the podcast. It helps people find us. When we uh, left, I was talking with Dorset about a shower issue. And uh, Dorset, let me, let me ask you just a couple of quick questions because, you know, you got all these different shower heads. You said you got different valves, on and off valves for 
the different showers, and all of them are acting up, correct? Yeah, and there are different times that they act up, but right. it's, it's, it's hot and cold that's the problem. Does it start off hot and then go to cold, or it just it doesn't matter sometimes no, when you turn it on? You just can't get hot. No, it's it's. There's an instant hot water heater that is about probably forty feet from the the room that the showers are in, and that wasn't a problem originally. Okay. But I don't know if it's the valves that aren't turning the hot water on, or if it's the hot water heater that's not doing it. I, I don't know, but I get hot water. Normally at my sink in the kitchen, uh-huh. and I get it in the uh, bathroom that's close to the hot water heater. I get it there okay. uh, without uh, too much trouble. Do you have more than one water heater? No. Okay. So that kind of eliminates the water heater from being the problem. And and and, and you actually went down the road. I was going to head down here in a second anyway. So uh, that eliminates that from being the issue since you got hot water everywhere else. I'm thinking, and the reason I kept going back and asking, do you have more than one valve for shutting water on and off? It, it, these are single-handle valves, correct? Right. When you take the handle off... Underneath a single-handle valve is a little disc that's typically like a a half-moon shape that has cogs on it. And everything that you described sounds like the, the set screw isn't in that little cog. And so at different times, the showers are acting different. Uh, what's making your issue very unique is the fact that it's two handles doing it. And while we were on the news break there, I got to thinking about it. I'll bet you the same plumber put both valves in. And I'll bet he didn't put those set screws in or didn't tighten them. He did the same mistake on both of them, I'll bet. And that's the reason both are acting up. Okay. So uh, here's how, here's how you can check it. If you'll just remove okay. just remove the the handle, you know that that you adjust, right? And look underneath it. They're, they're, those uh, half moon shapes are usually gray in color, and like I said, it's got a cog, you know, notches on one side. It's just a half moon shape, and there's a set screw in a slot because they're adjustable so that you can adjust how much hot water uh, is coming to it. I'll bet you that piece is loose in there, and that's what's causing the problem. Well, the handle on one has actually come semi-looser. Okay. The handle itself. Yep. Uh, But on the other side, that little, where we have the um, drain down and the... uh, switch to make it go into the hand shower and you can bring right. the hand shower that reverter or reverse or whatever you call that into that little that washer directional, thing yeah yeah it's it's uh it's screwed up yeah yeah i i got an idea it's just that the the, the stuff plane wasn't put in right to begin with when, uh, you know, the parts inside weren't tightened up. So I would start by checking that cog. And if that's the case, you can just have a, a plumber come in and make adjustments on this stuff if you want. Or, you know, you can do it yourself. But I'm pretty sure that's where it's going to be. 
Okay, well, let me ask you this. Because I've had a plumber look at it about six months ago, Mm -hmm. and the side that backs up to another bathroom, uh, they were telling me that that where I have that double, where I have that switch that switches to the uh, sprayer that you can bring down hand, right, the diverter valve, the ceiling, yeah, the converter valve. Um, They were saying. That's gone. That's that needs to be replaced. Sounds reasonable. And my okay. What kind of expense am I looking at? Do they have to go into the walls, or can they do it from the outside? Because this guy was saying you've got to go in to the other bathroom and cut into the sheetrock to get to it. More than likely, he's correct. Uh, because you have to, ha- in order to replace it, you're talking about replacing the housing and everything. Now. I would look at it, can the insides be replaced and save the uh, housing and everything? And if that's the case, you, w- you wouldn't have to cut into the wall. So it's easy okay. to say, hey, let's just cut in the wall and replace all this. But uh, a lot of times you can just replace the guts of everything and be just fine. Okay. Um how do I know the plumber can do it? Because the two that have looked at it in the past two years tell me, oh, you're going to have to go into the back. And it's like they don't want to mess with the parts. They just yeah. they can't or they say they can't well, get the parts. And then and, and depending on how old it is, you may not be able to get the parts, uh, especially right now. Parts are just miserable. Uh, it's about, I would say, 12 years old at the max. Yeah, okay. The house Typically. was hulled and redone then. Okay. Typically, something of that age can be gotten. Uh, if you want to call my office at Due West Plumbing, talk with Alton, and uh, I, I think he'll be able to help you out with this. And we are headed to Humble and Kenneth. Welcome to Texas hey, Improvement. Hey, Jim. Thanks for taking my call. Great show. Learn a lot every weekend. Thank hey, I you, got sir. a um, question or looking for a recommendation. I'm doing a DIY project. We have a house up north that we're going to be um, refinishing the floors. I did a lot when I was a kid. You know, strip it, sand it down, and varnish. And I just varnished some steps from and got some polyurethane from like a from the uh, box store and really didn't like the way it came out and it's like really uh-huh. yellow and things like that and i don't want to do this on you know this this house that, um so i'm looking for kind of like a recommendation but when we were a kid and we used to do it a lot when at my dad's rental properties we used to sometimes use like spar varnish and things so looking for a recommendation where it's not going to yellow um we're going to sand it down um and then redo it and looking for what you might think to what kind you know, of polyurethane there, or spar varnish? There is a product yeah. that Minwax puts out made specifically for doing floors. And I, I used it on some steps uh, that I redid. And I, that's what I would take a look at. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's made, like I said, for walking on, so it's extremely durable. Uh, and I not only use it on some steps, but I, I, I did a kitchen table with it as well. And the, the main reason I used it on that was I wanted something that wasn't going to scratch up, wasn't going to, like you said, yellow and, and all that. And I've, I've had that down for about, uh, oh, 14, 15 years already and haven't had zero issue with it. 
Uh, so take a look at the Minwax product on it. So is this going to be a polyurethane or a spar varnish? They have it. Or both. urethane. What would you recommend? I, I remember we used, my dad used to like doing this boat stuff. He said it's more durable on, on his rental properties. Exactly. <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> the, the problem with the polyurethanes is they seal uh, a little too tight and can can run into some some issues so um but it, put on properly they'll do just fine and uh, e- either one of them is fine get the one that has the tint to it that you like okay okay yeah i really want to go natural clear so the wood the natural wood color will come i'm not looking yep. for you know any type of stain i like the you know the light oak that we have on the floor it's just well i, w- I will tell you a lot of people done. say that they they like uh, they you know they want to go with that natural and, and stuff but it's really not what they're looking for because when you go all natural it doesn't bring out all those wood grains and stuff you've got to go with a very light tint to it in order to bring out all the wood grains and, and really make it pop uh i got you i i understand what you mean um yeah Okay, so Minwax would be your recommendation. Yep. Okay. Thanks, Jim. Great show. You bet. Take care. Just FYI, I forgot to tell you, it's not the cheapest product you're going to find out there. It is rather pricey, but it does the job the way it needs to be done as well. Bill, this is Jim. How can I help you? Uh, yes, sir. I need a new roof, and, um, and I am thinking about uh, solar roof, solar shingles. No. Okay. And, and just wanted to get your thoughts about how long they last. Uh, does it take away the need for a radiant barrier? Because I currently don't have one. Um, things of that nature. Okay. Well, I, I will tell Have you looked into the price of them yet? Uh, no, that's the one I'm scared of. <laughs> yeah, that, that will make you run. Um, okay. I, I will tell you, the rest of us will thank you for the technology that you're working on that the rest of us will use probably in another 15 to 20 years. Uh, ah. Solar shingles actually do work. The big problem is just playing the cost of them. Uh, and yes, it can help with the need of a radiant barrier. Now, uh, it it still allows heat to go through it and everything if it was my home unless unless you've got a lot of expendable money no, i wouldn't no. look at rake I, I would not be looking at solar shingles at this time it's well, it's not ready for ma- it's not ready for mainstream yet deborah welcome to texas home improvement how can i help you uh jim i have a bathroom plumbing question okay um what might be the cause of a toilet bubbling when I run water in the sink next to it? It's not bubbling unless the sink is running, and sometimes it even pull. If if I run enough water in the sink, it even starts pulling the toilet water level down. Yep. You you've got a blocked vent pipe. A blocked what pipe? Vent pipe. A blocked it's a, vent pipe. Yeah, the it and what the vent pipe does is it runs up through the roof, comes out on the roof, and that it's it's basically like a straw. If you take a straw and, and you you know put it down into a drink, you put your finger over the top and you lift it up, all the fluid stays in the straw. Yeah. The second you take your finger off, everything drains out. 
the vent pipe does the same thing for all the plumbing underneath your home. And okay. so what's happening is the vent pipe is plugged, and when the sink is running, it's looking for someplace to draw air in order to let that fluid run out. And so it's literally pulling the air through the toilet. Okay. All right. Uh, and it's not involved. It doesn't seem to affect the tub in that bathroom, but we know the tub is on a different line. Yeah, well, it's, it's on the other other yeah. side of the room probably and has a yes. different vent. Okay. So this has its own vent, the sink and the potty right there. Um, yeah. What do we do to to unblock it? You know, most of the time, I don't know if you guys want to do this or not, but most of the time you can go up on the roof with just a water hose and okay. come down through that vent, pushing the water hose down and blow out whatever's blocking it. Uh, if okay. not, then they have to run a snake through it to clean it out. But it all has to be done from the roof down. Yes, ma'am. Yep. There's there's no entrance anywhere else? No, ma'am. Okay. Okay. All right. Thank you very much. You bet. You take care. Oh, let me ask you one other sure. thing. Is, is there any, uh, until we get this done, should we not use that bathroom? Is there any issues other than it's just not functioning very well right now? It's just not going to function well, and you're going to okay. find periods of times where it's going to be difficult to get everything to flow out. And chances are good when you flush the toilet, it's drawing air from the sink. Uh, so, you know, they're, they're probably working off of each other. Okay. Uh, it, 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 I, I would tell you I would not pay a plumber overtime or anything like that to get this taken care of. It's not that kind of emergency. Okay. But, yeah, you'll, you'll want to get it taken care of because sooner or later it's going to cause a blockage that will back up and, and uh, cause a flood damage. Okay. And what, what is blocking? What, what could be blocking there? In that vent, what, oh, something it can, got in there, or something got in there. I mean, uh, I have seen squirrels get down in those pipes and block it. Uh, I have seen um, wasp nests get down in there and block it. it it's just uh, any number of things can get in there to to block it up. Tom, how are you? I'm fine, Jim. How about yourself? Doing great. How can Thanks. I help you? Thanks for taking my call. I got you know. I understand you're the expert on foundations, so I got one for you. Okay. I've got two large 30-year-old crepe myrtles that are huge that are three feet from either either end of my house, and the tree guy says they need to come down and be ground because at some point they're going to start in, impacting my foundation, which they haven't yet, thankfully. But he said you still may, after you have them taken down and grinded, that some of the roots under the house may still cause a foundation problem. So can you tell, help me understand what that's all about? Sure. The bigger the plant gets, the more moisture it has to take out of the soil. The more moisture it takes out, the soils begin to shrink. That causes that corner to go down. So, you know, I, I know uh, arborists and plant guys will tell you, oh, you're committing crepe myrtle death when you cut them back every year. But if you maintain them down in a smaller size, it won't be an issue. But if yeah, if you let them grow and and where they get to be a you know forty foot crepe myrtle that's you know three four feet in diameter with all the different trunks coming up and stuff, uh, and it's got tons of leaves on it, that needs more moisture. The fewer the leaves, the less moisture the the tree's going to require. 
Well, these these are both huge, and so they were never trimmed back because of the reason you said. And so now I'm faced with if I cut, I need to cut them down probably, or they will definitely have an impact on my slab. And if I do cut them down, they may still have an impact on my slab. So, uh, what, would you, so what would you do? You know, I, I be honest with you, I would simply watch. If they start having an impact on the on the foundation, cut them down at that point. But until then, just monitor it. And what you're going to be watching for is there's the the boards that hang down over the brick on the corner. Is this a brick home? Yes, it is. Okay, that's called a freeze board. And if it starts opening up on the corner, that tells you something is moving. Watch windows uh, along there. If a gap starts growing between the brick and the window, something is moving. The minute I start seeing that, I'd say goodbye to the crepe myrtle. But uh, if I'm not seeing any type of damage yet, to be honest with you, I got one on each corner of my house as well. So if I do have to have them taken down at some point, what do I do about trying to keep the roots underneath from causing a problem? They, I wouldn't worry about that a bit. Uh, after they come down, the biggest issue you can have is the soil starts taking on moisture and it lifts it back up. And you're only taking them down because it's already going down. So not, I wouldn't worry about that at all. I had another question come in from Sandy in Carrollton about that. She says, I would like to install a fan in my two-stall garage to make it a bit more comfortable while doing small tasks in the summer months. Would you recommend a ceiling fan or a wall mount fan? Thank you for your help. Well, you know, a ceiling fan is basically going to circulate the air in the garage. And usually what it's doing is pushing air from up top down. And so you, you, your, your hot air that rises is being circulated throughout the garage. The moving air across your skin is what's going to make you feel cooler, not so much just the air itself that you're moving. So as far as, far as uh, what's going to be better you know, one that's mounted in the ceiling or one that's down below. My experience has always been if you put a ceiling fan in a garage, you end up hitting it with stuff because you're you're pulling vehicles in, you're pulling uh, projects you're working on in, and that hangs far enough down off the ceiling that you end up hitting it. So I would look at getting a shop fan, which would be portable that can be moved, and then you can move it around as need be to have air moving across you on the projects you're working on. So, yeah, if you're looking for a, a way to cool down while you're working on projects, that would be the way I would get. You've just heard the best calls and questions from Texas Home Improvement. For more information about our show, go to THIPro.com.